So, Alain Townsend is now a professor of molecular immunology at the Wetherill Institute of Molecular Medicine. However, he arrived in the John Radcliffe in 1984 in the group, apparently. That's what I found. And it's a period, I must say, that I remember very, very fondly. It's a period when the group had grown sufficiently and we had a little bit more space, a little bit more space. And we did some really exciting things, which... Uh, Perhaps Ali's going to tell us about. It's a very great pleasure to be here. Um, when I was discussing this with Andrew a while ago, he said it would be nice to say something about the history, uh, and um, I'm going to do that. Um, it was a wonderful time, um, but f uh, and uh, and I think there are lessons to be drawn from the history. I think I think dwelling in the history is a bad thing, but uh, there are lessons to be drawn, and and I want to emphasize that, in my view, what happened could have happened in many places. It happened to happen in Mill Hill and Oxford for one special reason, in my view, or two special reasons uh, that relate to what Rolf was saying. The atmosphere was right. There was an open atmosphere in which you were encouraged to think and explore, not to follow a particular line of work. And, and that was very important. And also there was a, an enthusiasm, which is difficult to define. Um, there was the background. So going to Mill Hill, where every flu virus since 1933 was in the freezer, um, there was immense expertise in the, in the division um, of virology, immunology, and gene structure and expression, where Everything that was available was available to you as a student, and there were people willing to help you and train you, and it was an extraordinary environment. I want to dedicate what I'm going to say to Andrew, of course, but also to Ita, who I'm very sad is not here. Um, and I, I want to describe what it was like in 1979. I, I was a junior doctor at St. Mary's Hospital, where Andrew had been. I'd worked for Stan Peart as well, and been very much inspired by him. And at that stage, I was doing an SHO job, a very busy SHO job. I was uh, looking after the neurology ward. I also looked after all the admissions for the VD clinic, which was the largest in Europe. Uh, all the patients who came in from the dermatology clinic uh, with bad skin and so forth. And uh, I was on for cardiac arrests. And I had to look after any uh, members of staff who were admitted because the hospital superintendent, who was also the GP, Cocky Coburn, who you remember, uh, um, I had to work for him too. So I was quite busy, it was a one in two. But in the evenings, I went off to the library and I was reading, because I had to, you had to be there. And um, I began, we saw just so much disease that were linked to the MHC. So a lot of those patients, and those MS patients, and these linkage to the MHC began to fascinate me. And um, and of course, I began to read Rolf's papers. Can you imagine uh, a young doctor trying to understand these thymic transplants, bone marrow transplants, and these mice? Um, but gradually, I began to see a picture, and I felt that trying to understand T cells was going to be important. Because at that stage, of course, the T cell was defined by a surface marker, but nothing else was known about it, uh, except for MHC restriction, of course. Um, so in the September of 1979, after discussions with Av Mitchison and a lot of discussions with Stan Peart, and I'd been to see Marty Raff, they all said, you must go and see ITER. 
So I made an appointment to see her on a rainy afternoon in September of 1979. I went to see her and I had a fantastic day. She showed me around, she explained about uh, the nature of the recognition of flu-infected cells by T cells. She, we discussed MHC restriction and this interesting phenomenon that the T cells were broadly, were broadly reactive, do recognize something which is not conserved. Um, and she introduced me to John Scahell and the idea was that John would be a co-supervisor and I could learn my virology from him and the whole, you know, the wonderful freezer at Mill Hill was available. Um, and then I also got to know the people in gene structure. And the one thing that really made a difference to me, um, uh, as I say, there was this background, and I was also, I'd been reading this book by Claude Bernard, which was introduced to me uh, by the professor of surgery. And I have to say, it revolutionized my outlook. It was the first time I understood what it might be like to actually do experiments and discover something new. It's a wonderful book, predates Popper and its sort of attitude. And Eta said at the end of the day, in, her, in a particular way, looking at me, she said, Alan, you can do absolutely anything you want when you come here. And that was uh, like, that was the, the sort of epiphany moment. I thought, well, if that's really the attitude of this place, I have to come here. And uh, it really was almost like that. Of course, it wasn't, she didn't completely mean it, but. Uh, <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, I started there uh, in the following year, uh, in the September of 1980, and I had never touched a pipette or handled an animal, handled quite a lot of patients, but, um, and I knew absolutely nothing. Uh, and uh, Eta had this wonderful technician called Pat Taylor, who kind of took me under her wing and taught me how to do things in the lab. And uh, I want to particularly mention her because she was uh, uh, very kind and thoughtful. And for several months, I, I read a lot, I, I learned some techniques, but I was trying to come up with a question. We, we discussed the specificity of T cells, but we had no means to analyze it because, of course, simple experiments like antibodies to the viral proteins did not block the T cells. And um, at the time, there was no cDNA. Um, you couldn't transfect or do anything like that. Um, so how, how to go about it? So instead, I was thinking about the T cells, and I read some very interesting papers from Case Malief and Linda Sherman, who had been following this long history of this phenomenon of alloreactivity, that this extraordinary phenomenon that, that one individual has an enormous number of T cells that recognize the tissues of another individual of the same species. And um, Snell and people had been isolating mutations in the KB molecule. And the, the reactions between those, despite there only being one or two amino acids, were even greater. And I, that was fascinating. And then Case and Linda had, had developed uh, you know, the ability to clone T cells. And they took those T cells and then uh, asked which of the KB mutants they could recognize. And almost every T cell clone saw a different pattern of the mutants, implying that the footprint of whatever the T cell receptor was seeing, there were many different footprints on that molecule, which seemed to me extraordinary. It wasn't just like CD8 binding site. There were many ways it could interact. And that, I thought, told us something. And of course, now we have all the structural <coughs> correlations of that. But then I decided that what would be an interesting thing to do would be to see if this variety of recognition of the class one molecule by specific T cells, by virus specific T cells was also true. And so I went to see Eta and said, could I do this as a, as a starting point? And she said, that sounds, seems fine. But we didn't have black mice at Mill Hill at the time. And we didn't have the, we had black mice, we didn't have the mutants. And I got in touch with Stan Nathanson who, who was developing them. 
uh, but uh, Case Malief had them. So he kindly gave us breeding pairs and we got all this started. And I began to look at the immune response in the black mouse. And uh, the key thing, obviously, was to get KB-restricted T-cell clones. And as I grew these cultures and cloned out cells, all I ever got was DB-restricted clones. I never got KB-restricted clones. It was very frustrating because in the cultures, at the beginning, you could detect KB-restricted activity, but it always faded. There was some immune response gene effect. And uh, this was you know, a bit of a problem. And so um, I then read a paper by Liz Simpson showing that in the K-mouse, the response to HY, that the restriction was influenced by where you immunized. So a foot pad immunization was different to an IP immunization. So then we started trying lots of different feeder cells to try and bring out the KB reactive. And eventually, it turned out that, that using Coney blasts, irradiated Coney blasts, would do it. And eventually, Pat uh, isolated this clone. Um, uh, 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 and we compared that to polyclonal cells, and indeed there was a real difference, um, particularly the BM3 and BM7. So it looked like the restriction was also, there were different footprints on the MHC molecule, which was fine, and we know a great deal more about that now. But all throughout, I had these uh, DB-restricted clones that were used as controls, and eventually I decided uh, to finish off, I ought to check the virus specificity of these clones. And that's when, again, the luck just happened that the wrong parental virus was recognized. So all of these are raised against X31, which is a cross between IHE68 and PR834. And if these clones, uh, what happened was that the clones appeared to be subtype specific, that they recognized one parent and not the other. In fact, originally, it was the fact that they didn't recognize the USSR. And uh, if they were recognizing one parent, the dogma was at the time that it should be a glycoprotein and therefore it should be the Aichi parent. But it wasn't. They didn't recognize Aichi. They recognized uh, actually the PR834. And I, I went to Eater and she said, look, you better go and speak to John about this. Doesn't really make sense. So I went down to see John and he said, well, it's obvious that you've, you've muddled up the tubes of virus. So <laughs> let's do it again. And, and so then, of course, we did it again, and Rose, his technician, grew up very carefully, fresh batches of virus, and we also th thawed out all the nice variants that would go back to Wilson Smith of 33. And again, it was absolutely clear that the wrong parental virus was being recognized. And in fact, what was very nice was that that epitope disappeared between, I think it was 43 and 46. And I saw it's so bad, I can't see the screen. Try to put my glasses on, yeah. 43 and 46. Uh, it just went. And in fact, Jeffrey Shield had been doing some experiments years before and had seen a shift in the, anti the, the pattern of reactivity of polyclonal sera in, in uh, single radial immunodiffusion uh, between these years. So it could have been, it looked like it might correlate with NP. And then uh, Peter Polizzi visited the lab and I discussed these results with him, and I, I remember, actually, he looked extremely doubtful about the whole thing, but he said uh, there was uh, no problem with getting his tight reassortant viruses. And what he had done, he'd learned, he'd noticed that the RNA segments from different strains migrated slightly differently in polyacrylamide urea gels, and he could type the whole thing. So he had a whole lot of type variants, and then it was a relatively simple matter simply to grow these up and compare. And in every case with these early clones, it correlated with the nuclear protein gene from one parent. And now, while this was going on, this paper appeared from John Yadell, 
and Jack Benning. And uh, all through my career, um, I I've been, you know, uh, very much alongside these characters. And um, they had found a clone in a Balb Seamouse that appeared to map to the, one of the polymerase genes. And they just came up with this, what I thought was uh, rather a mammoth statement, saying oh, it probably meant that either the, the polymerase was affecting some other protein that was being recognized at the cell surface, or the polymerase was on the cell surface. But how on earth could that be? Because I'd been reading my textbooks, and I knew about signal sequences, and there's no signal sequence in the P3 protein. So Claude Bernard talked about counter, what he called counter-experiments, essentially what we would call generalizations. And so I wanted to do the whole thing again, but in the opposite way around. So to start, now I used, in fact, the, the E61 13H17 <coughs> reassortant, which differs from, from X31 just in the, in the nuclear protein. And primed mice with that and re-stimulated them, either with that virus or with X31, so that the only difference would be in the nuclear protein. And then uh, looked at what came out, and again, we've got this beautiful uh, um, division of the natural variants, but now the other way around. So um, the pre uh, or post-1946 uh, viruses were recognized, and the pre-1946 ones were not. Um, and again, that ability to stimulate cross-reactive cells now uh, depended on the NP. So the NP really looked like it, it should be being recognized. Now, at the time, there were papers coming out saying there was some NP on the cell surface, but again, it wasn't very much. The cells were dying from influenza, and it instinct, I, you know, signal sequences seemed to me to be important, and I, I did not see how that could be. So then, by this time, George Brown, we'd, I'd moved to Oxford, and um, there was an you know, open house, and the lovely thing, again, about Oxford was you can go to any lab, and say you're interested in learning something, and always the door was open. And George was very welcoming, and uh, I learned how to transfect cells. And the obvious thing was then to use a, a nuclear protein gene and transfect the cells and see if they were recognized. Uh, was, there a whole was the whole virus needed to, to get this effect? And this was relatively straightforward. And from the gene structure and expression of people, I had a nice D of B gene that I could put in alongside in the L cells. And uh, you could get quite good expression. But when I looked uh, by staining, and it was actually Andrew's suggestion to use immunoperoxidase, which was available in NDS, um, you saw this very extraordinary thing that very few, actually most of the cells, you couldn't detect any protein. And yet, we'd get 80% lysis. You know, that quite clearly some of these cells, despite the fact that you couldn't detect anything with the antibody, and you certainly didn't detect any membrane staining compared to the, the, the uh, class one molecules, and yet they were recognized. So it was a very strong feeling that something there was more to this. Um, secondly, when uh, uh, I met John Davy, who uh, was working in Warwick, and he was interested in the migration of NP into the nucleus. Mostly it's found in the nucleus. And he was trying to identify the signal which took the nuclear protein in the nucleus. So uh, he had made uh, cDNA deletions and was looking at which ones moved into the nucleus. Um, and these, of course, were enormously inviting to just transfect with these and see if we could identify bits that were recognized by the T cells. And what was also important is that some of these you could detect with the antibodies, but after a while the smaller ones were degraded very rapidly 
and uh, I could not detect anything in the cells with polyclonal sera by optimizing all the immunoprecipitations. And yet those cells were recognized, and what was clear was that there were epitopes at one end of the protein that were recognized through H2K, epitopes at the other recognized through H2D of B, so there was specificity in the selection of epitopes. And um, uh, what was more, we could uh, identify regions where the epitope must be. And, uh, and uh, by 1985, I'd come to these conclusions. Now, it was very difficult to actually put this in the paper because the referees didn't like it very much, but I felt that it was reasonable because logic dictated that something must be going on. So the idea was that what, maybe what was recognized was not the folded molecule. Um, uh, perhaps it was being degraded in the cytoplasm where it was being synthesized. <coughs> which these could be uh, you know, transported by an undefined mechanism. Obviously, many years of work went into defining that mechanism. And it may be no different to what occurs during the turnover of all proteins in cells and the rapid degradation of abnormal and short-lived proteins. I'd been reading these papers by Hershko and Kachanova. They later got no, uh, shared the Nobel Prize for their work on protein turnover. And it seemed to me logical to suggest that, that things were being continually turned over, that allergy activity was actually the recognition of self-proteins that are being presented continuously. Right? Um, and uh, the, uh, an obvious candidate was the pathway they were defining, the ubiquitin-dependent proteolytic system, which is through the proteasome. Um, and it would predict that this should exist in all cells, because you don't need anything special. Um, and it would explain other things like why many, many T cell antigens could not be defined with antibodies. And in fact, there were no, I think it's fair to say, reproducible examples of an antibody against a viral antigen which blocked recognition. Um, and we used to have this joke with Alan Rickinson, who he was visiting a lot at the time, because there was this thing called um, LIDMA, which was the lymphocyte-determined membrane antigen of EBV. And uh, the, the phrase we used was LIDMA is actually Ebner in disguise. And that turned out to be right. So that was the blueprint. And actually, the next 10 years of work uh, for me was to find out if any of these concepts had any validity or not. And the other thing I wanted to do was to show or find out if the same rules applied to glycoproteins. And George, I went to see George. And uh, Keith Gould um, uh, agreed to work with me on this. Keith is a wonderful person to work with, uh, extremely careful. Uh, and skillful and taught me how to uh, do all these things with mutagenesis and those you had to make all the oligos yourself he, uh, and we did that together and George it was very kind he said uh, you can do this if you want but you shouldn't really be wasting your time doing this kind of thing you know you should do something more sensible but he still let me do it which was the important thing and uh, we deleted the signal sequence and when you do that and express the protein in the cytosol you just get a whiff of the deleted, uh, of the single deleted protein, which is not glycosylated, and is very rapidly degraded in in, uh, in uh, pulse chase experiment. But when you look at the T cells that recognise hemagglutinin, which are a minority, there was absolutely no difference in the recognition of cells that express this versus cells that express that. And this you could not detect on the cell surface at all with antibody. So I was then sort of convinced that this process was generalizable. And uh, of course, we then looked at the region that we'd narrowed things down to. And th there's a little story here, because uh, I had uh, formed a collaboration with Gulam 
in John's lab, and he was going to make the peptides. Again, there were no nice, shiny peptide synthesizers in those days. You had to make it by hand. It was a smelly business and uh, um, a bit boring. So Gulam took a long, a long time to make these. I, I went to see him in, in, uh, at the end of 1984, and I didn't have all the peptides until about September 1985. And he laboriously made them, and the idea, obviously, that we knew that one of these changes must be responsible for the, rec the, the difference in recognition that we were seeing with the B-restricted clones. And uh, he made them, and I worked at it, and I tr worked out pl uh, proliferation assays and, and tried CTL assays, nothing, 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 months. And eventually I phoned him up and I said, you are making the peptides from the 1968 sequence, aren't you? He said, oh, oh no. No, I'm making them from the 1934 sequence. Oh. <laughs> so then we started again, but there were two peptides that he had not made. Uh, he had not made uh, the 345 to 360, which was the one covering these two. At that stage, we were still waiting for that, and he was going to make one that covered these two. So I said, just make those two from the 68 sequence, and we'll try it straight away. So this rather smelly brown sludge arrived, and um, uh, I put it into a proliferation assay on the 8th of October. And in my notebook, which I went and have a look at the other day, there's just this sort of laconic comment. It appears to have worked. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, by, but by the 22nd of October, I had all the controls. So here are L cells that are either untransfected with DFB or transfected with DFB. Fantastic recognition, much better actually than the virus-infected cells. And I had the the uh, 1934 specific cells growing at the time recognized X31, but not H17, and they didn't see it. So, and I can remember actually, the killing was often so good that I called everyone over in the lab. Do you remember that day? We, and we looked down the microscope, and you actually see the L cells, which are big cells, um, disintegrating. So it was very exciting. Um, now, things happened very rapidly after that. Oh, I should actually mention, special mention here, goes to Mike Gotch. Because before, we had, uh, uh, before Rothbard had joined in, um, we had these peptides, and uh, Andrew and, and Francis were screening humans uh, for uh, see if any of them responded to this. And it turned out that Mike, so we kept it in the family, Mike Gotch, made a good response to this peptide through HLA-B37. <laughs> so he, he was the first human in the universe uh, to provide T cells that recognize peptides. Um, now, so at this stage, things move very rapidly. Andrew, and by, uh, by this time also, Jeff Smith uh, was no longer hooked up to, to um, Benink and, and Udell, because uh, I'd written to him in 1984, beginning of 1984, after his Nature paper about recombinant vaccinia, because obviously everything would go much quicker if you could do it with, with vaccinia. And those were then released, and within weeks, uh, Andrew and Francis had shown that Matrix was a major epitope, uh, provided a major epitope through HLA-A2, and that, of course, led to all the structural work and so on. So we knew what went in, um, whoops, and we knew um, what, uh, came, uh, what came out, roughly speaking, but we didn't know what was going on inside. And the next 10 years, uh, with many very, very wonderful colleagues, including Enzo and Tim, Elliot and John Elvin and, and Lisa and, and lots of other people, uh, we worked on this along with many other people. And, uh, and that's the story for another day. Now, I don't know how much time I've got left, Fran. Maybe, maybe 
Four minutes. Four minutes. <laughs> because I also wanted to say a little bit um, about what we're doing now um, on flu. So for the last few years, uh, I decided to do some more work on flu. And I'm not going to show thousands of slides. I think I'm just going to tell you. And then uh, um, one of the things, obviously, some of this, uh, one of the justifications for doing this was whether to find out whether uh, vaccines that stimulated this system might uh, be useful, might help in protection. Parche, Rolf, yeah. And uh, um, because in mice, certainly, um, uh, ITER had shown, um, following um, Gordon Ada's work with, with T-cell transfers in the mouse that could provide a level of protection, um, that a single T-cell clone could do it. So was it worth trying to, do, to make vaccines that did this? Because subunit vaccines and dead virus does, does not do this. And Andrew had shown in 1983, famous paper, that there was a correlation between the um, redu reduction in viral shedding and the presence of these T cells in the absence of detectable neutralizing antibody. And I think that word detectable is very important because the definition, in my view, of so-called heterotypic immunity that you do see is immunity in the absence of detectable neutralizing antibody, which was actually seen in 1933. In the very first paper of um, Laidlaw, Andrews, and Smith, they worked with Shope's virus, Shope had isolated pig virus uh, two years before, and they'd swapped viruses immediately, and uh, they'd found that, that animals that had recovered from pig flu were resistant to human flu, but they could not detect any cross-neutralizing antibodies. So there was something going on, either antibody they couldn't detect, which might have been local, or something else. And uh, I think T cells perhaps were playing some role. But if you're going to make T cells, I think the other thing to remember is that this thing is a, a unique structure. It's got its own signals in there, which are going to invoke uh, um, the, uh, you know, not just adaptive immunity, but innate immunity that may be quite linked to the fact that this is an RNA virus. And uh, the, the world seemed to be making various forms of DNA vaccines, you know, all based on DNA. Uh, and if you give a DNA thing in a muscle, it's really very, very different from this thing infecting your lung. So uh, after a while, with, with, as the technology improved and it became possible to make recombinant influenza, which again was developed in Oxford, um, and uh, George's uh, uh, um, uh, successor um, uh, uh, was, Irvin had developed it. And um, so I started again a collaboration with the Dunn School to make some viruses which could not replicate following Peter Polizzi again and just see if they're any good at, at immunizing. And I'm not going to show you all the data, but actually they're very good at it. And they induce a very strong T cell response. They're actually quite good at inducing antibody as well. Um, and you can, uh, they're totally non-pathogenic because they don't replicate, so you can give a really metered dose. Whereas all the other forms of live attenuated flu do replicate to some extent, and people are very reluctant to, to perhaps uh, take them in by an aerosol because they will replicate to some extent. And particularly with people who might have these various genetic predispositions to flu replication, you might be worried about this. But with these things, in my view, they don't replicate, so you could give a metered dose by aerosol perhaps. So I think that's worth following. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is we've become interested in the antibody response. And um, I, because of this wonderful new technology, uh, the ability to make human monoclonals, and I, having listened to Rafi Ahmed two or three years ago, I felt we had to set that up because it was just, in, there were so many ways you could use it. So, so um, with Chris Lee and, uh, um, and Arthur, 
who was working with Chris, his student, working with Chaoning, they, they were studying humans who were responding to flu challenges, and Pramila, who, who came in on a visit for six months from Memingen, um, uh, we did a deal, and, and Arthur and Chris were going to do the PCRs and the, and the uh, transfections, and, and then I would, uh, and Pramila would help with that, and then I would screen them all anyway. So we've made lots of antibodies, and Lisa's been very helpful with that too. Um, and Craig, I have to say, Craig and Kevin are fantastic on the cell sorter, amazingly efficient, and we've never had an infection. Um, uh, and with two points. First of all, I absolutely agree with what you say, Rolf, that the response is very oligoclonal. It's very interesting, and that confirms others. Um, that of 36, we, 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 what we've done is improved the system a bit by sorting with hemagglutinin, and so we can get pure sorts of hemagglutinin-specific uh, B cells. Um, of 36 in one sort, 18 are neutralizing, classic, very powerful, titrate out, supernatant titrates out to one in 500 or one in 1,000 for HAI and neutralization, proper neutralization. Those neutralizing ones come from three clones, and one clone is dominant. So there are 14 from one clone and four or five from others. They're all different because they all have different somatic mutations. And there are five that are this stem, this stem-specific ones. So we know they're stem-specific because they compete with the classic stem-specific antibody published in 1993. They are lowish affinity. They're about at least tenfold lower when you titrate them. Um, and in neutralization, they definitely work, but at about a hundredfold higher concentration. So the question is, would those ever be useful? And I, I actually, I really agree that I think from a vaccination point, the likelihood of being able to stimulate enough of that is very low probability. But the patient's always right. In uh, several labs, if you give these things to mice after they've been infected with flu, 24 hours with a lethal infection, they will get better if you give enough. So they may have therapeutic potential, although my view is also that if we do do a trial of antibodies in ITU, which is what I'd really like to do, they should initially be the high affinity matched um, HAI type ones. Um, and because the technology is so quick and easy, there's absolutely no reason in the future why you shouldn't update such antibodies every year, because you can, you can get them so easily and quickly now. So, this, um, so uh, those are all interesting things. So um, I must stop. Um, it's been uh, a fairly incredible time in Oxford. Um, always, as I say, with this open door policy, which is an enthusiasm, which is so particularly special. And I, I think the one message I have for all those very senior people who are here now and who are running institutions, I think there is a, I worry sometimes, I wake up and I'm worrying a little bit about this, that we are, that students have a very prescribed life uh, often now. They are, you know, they almost get a set of instructions each day uh, to do this experiment or that experiment, and, uh, and then don't have that freedom to breathe as much as I think they should. And, and there are selection systems are very good. We get these brilliant students, but I worry a tiny bit that they don't often enough hear that phrase. You can do anything you want, but I don't really mean that. But you can. You can <laughs> I think it's very, very important to reflect on that.